Chet. This is week number four in our study in the book of Ecclesiastes, Life Under the Sun. And we saw from the very first week, life under the sun means living life as though there were no God, living life apart from God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, living life as though there was no eternal or biblical perspective. We know in Solomon's case, early, he was living godly and he was walking closely with the Lord as he was building the temple. And then he drifted and he strayed for decades. This is his autobiography of drifting and straying and then searching trying to find meaning and purpose and satisfaction under the sun, apart from God Almighty. Last week we were in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 switches gears. He's been talking about life under the sun, no God, uh, no Bible, doing it my own way. And then in chapter 3, now in verse 1, he says, now I'm going to talk about God as far as under the heavens, not under the sun. Which is, there is a God, he is in control, he has a plan, he knows what he's doing, there is a purpose and a meaning to life, and he's involved in every detail of our lives. He says that he's ordering every season, every activity in a purposeful and meaningful plan. Verses 1 to 8, chapter 3, last week we saw lots of things that we uh, go through are fun and joyous and, and really enjoyable. And then there are lots of things that we go through that are hard and sour and pain-filled activities of life. Solomon explains there's planning and purpose, catch this, in the joy and the laughter and the dancing, and there's planning and there's purpose in the mourning and the tears and the uprooting. We concluded by looking at verse 11, chapter 3. He, God, has made everything beautiful in his time. So after decades of testing and searching, he comes to this conclusion. There is an awesome creator behind everything. There is a God who does bring meaning and purpose, even beauty, to everything under the heavens. Last week, we uh, looked at uh, some cookie making. Uh, you may recall, we made some chocolate chunk cookies. Uh, uh, Lynn and I did, Lynn Southwood. Many of the ingredients of that uh, cookie we made Baking powder, flour, salt, vanilla, bitter, sour, bad tasting at the time, but we saw, but when you mix in all the ingredients together and you stir them in the bowls of our lives, here's the truth. The Lord knows what he's doing as a plan and a purpose. He's working together to make all things beautiful. Even though many of the events aren't very beautiful in themselves, right? The, uh, the baking soda is pretty sour all by itself when that's getting mixed into your life. 
the flour can choke you, right, Lynn, uh, when, when it's getting mixed into your life. Again, lots of things aren't pleasant at the time, but here's what Solomon said. I've looked it over. I've tested it all out. Here's what I've concluded. There is a God, and he knows what he's doing, and he's making all things beautiful in his time. This morning, Solomon's going to ask a hard question. Lord, if you're all-knowing and all-powerful and you're making everything beautiful in time, then why is there so much injustice? Why is there so much oppression? Why is there so much chaos in this world? He's just said there's this God under the heavens and he's awesome and he's got a plan and he's got a purpose. Then why is there so much unfairness? Why is there so many people oppressed? Why is there so much chaos in the world if you know everything and you're all powerful? And he's going to give us an answer. I don't think it's the only answer, but he's going to give us part of the answer in verses 9 to 12. If you're able, would you stand with me, please? We're going to read verses 1 to 12, Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Why do we stand when we read the Bible, you ask? I'm glad you asked. Yeah, I really am. Well, when we're about to recite the Pledge of Allegiance, what do most people do when you're about, what do you do? You stand, okay? When the judge walks into the courtroom, what must everybody do if you don't want to be cited for contempt? I'll give you another run at that because only two of you answered. The judge comes into the courtroom, what must you do if you don't want to be in trouble with the judge? And when the bride's about to come down the aisle, what do, what do all the guests typically do? Okay, this is God's inspired word. It's our marching orders, it's our owner's manual for life. And in Nehemiah 8, chapter 5, they sort of started this when they were reading God's word, when we were getting back to the rebuilding of the temple out of respect and honor, they stood. And catch this, are you ready? When Jesus was about to read the scriptures in the synagogue at Nazareth, Luke 4, 16, any guesses what Jesus did when he was about to read scriptures? He stood. So that's why we do it, in case you were wondering. Let's read out loud together. This is God's word. Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comfort. And I declared that the dead, who'd already died, are happier than the living, who are still alive. But better than both is the one who's never been born, who's not seen the evil that is done under the sun. And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked. And why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless. 
a miserable business. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they'll keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you again for describing life on earth under the sun. And we acknowledge, Lord, most people in this world live and think and speak just the way we've read. It's exactly how they're living. Sadly, Lord, even lots of folks who claim the name of your son Jesus are living this way. So would you help us to see uh, what your answers are when life seems unfair? Because, Lord, I know there are some folks here today who have gone through a season of attack and oppression. And Lord, I know that some of them right now are in the middle of one of those seasons. So can you show us today how we can survive the injustices, the trauma of this fallen world that we live in? I pray specifically for those who are under attack this morning. Lord, I'm praying that we as church family, and that's who we are, that we might be on the lookout for those who are in need of comfort. Lord, would you uh, make us very aware of those who need our care, our support, our love, our encouragement? That's why we gather. Even on challenging weather days, that's why we make an effort to be here, Lord. Because we need each other. And like we do every Sunday, Lord, we invite the third person of the Trinity. We invite Jesus in spirit form be welcomed here today in your church. Because Lord, this is your church. And all the church family gathered at Wallen Lake said with one unified voice, Solomon uh, writes inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's what you've got to understand. He's writing about his experiences but now he's looking back, I believe, with sadness and saying, uh, what can I do to make up for all of those lost decades? And I think he says, I think I, I'm going to write it down, inspired by the Holy Spirit, so we can learn from it. He says, look, verse 1, and so all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of the oppressors, and they have no comforter. Little definition of oppression. Uh, it's the unjust use of power to enforce an unequal relationship and deny other people their rights or their values. Oppression almost always preys on the helpless. Oppressors rarely pick on powerful, influential people. 
they almost always pick on the weak, the poor, those without a voice, those without influence. And those folks are getting exploited and taken advantage of uh, by the folks who have power and resources and they're well connected. Now, I think inside each of us there's this little inner voice, probably our conscience, our God-given conscience, that says life should be fair. Don't, don't you feel that way? When you see someone getting taken advantage of, you think, you know what, that isn't right. Life should be fair and everybody should get a fair shake. Nobody should get away with oppressing and denying other people their rights. That's why in sports we have referees and umpires, right? Yeah, you know in sports, if you just let everybody play with, with no referee or umpire, uh, some people will take advantage and it won't be fair. That's why we have laws and law enforcement officials. That's why we have judges and jails and prisons. You know why? Because <laughs> some people refuse to play fair. We have a system set up. Look back. Solomon is telling us life under the sun, life apart from God Almighty. Here's the dirty little secret. Life for the little guys is often unfair. Uh, life for those who can't afford the best lawyers, the little guys who are unconnected to powerful people. And I just want you to know, you got to think bigger than just northern Michigan right now. Because there's people oppressed here, but I'm talking billions and billions of people, weak and poor and helpless in this fallen world, who've done nothing wrong. They're innocent of wrongdoing, but they're suffering today. They're crying tears. Nobody's helping them in their times of suffering and despair. In fact, nobody really cares. Now, in case you're thinking, well, I think you might be exaggerating, I would point to entire countries like North Korea. I would point to entire countries like Venezuela, in Syria, in Russia, in Saudi Arabia, let me keep going, and Egypt, uh, where tens of millions of people are weak and helpless and poor and suffering and dying while their leaders are living in luxury and could care less about those who are getting oppressed. Matter of fact, that's how they remain in power, by oppressing and making sure they stay in power, whatever it takes. Now he moves on, verses 2 and 3, chapter 4. Many of them are so miserable and in such despair, they're helpless, they're hopeless, they feel like Job did in Job 3 and verse 3. Remember what Job, everything fell apart in his life, and Job sits in a heap and he said, I wish I'd never been born. I wish I'd never had come into this world. Life can feel so unfair that the oppressed feel like I'd be better off dead. I won't ask if you've ever felt that way, but when you're oppressed and overwhelmed and you don't have hope and you don't have the God of the Bible to walk through those times with you, pretty soon you're so despairing, you're so overwhelmed, you're thinking, you know what? 
I think I'd be better off dead. I wish I was never born. And I would suggest to you that today life under the sun is pretty hopeless. It's pretty sad. It's pretty meaningless, especially for those without power, uh, especially for those who feel they're being oppressed. Give me your eyes. And I believe that's the reason for the soaring, the key reason for the soaring suicide rate. People, they, they don't know the God of the Bible. They don't have the hope of Jesus Christ. And now they're getting oppressed. And sadly, many of them are just giving up on life. And I believe the key answer to the problem of suicide, and, and Todd's talked to me about this, I think it's huge here right where we live, is knowing the giver of real life, the source of joy and peace, and his name is, say it with me, Jesus Christ, the hope of the world. He is the answer, and I realize there's lots of underlying causes and roots, but the answer is the hope of the world. Knowing Him, living for Him, walking daily with Him. And you've got people around you today, and I've got people around me right now who are dying for us to live Jesus in front of them. Did you know that? We've got people around us who are dying for us not just to live Jesus, but to speak up some Jesus and they're thinking right now, 4-3, four, four, look at it. I wish I was never born. I wish I were dead. And now you have the answer to hope and joy and real peace that endures even through the hard times. just want you to know that hopelessness, that despair has been a part of humanity since Solomon's time. We think, well, that, well, that's new. It's, it's really bad. No, no. That's been around for 3,000 years. It's been a part of humanity. That sad, despairing, hopeless feeling has been around, actually, since Adam and Eve's day. Solomon then moves on. I would say after the fall of Adam and Eve's day. Okay? There we go. Don't need any cards or letters there. Solomon now moves on to the drudgery and the unfairness of work. Let's go to verse 4. Here's what he says. And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's what? Of another. This too is meaningless. A chasing after the wind. He says, I've noticed between human beings... There's this fierce competitiveness. There's this doggy uh, dog, -dog mentality which says, I want to win and I want to make sure I win, which means you lose. How many of you would be honest enough to say I'm pretty competitive by nature? Okay, there's about 12 of us. The rest of you ain't thinking very well. I have a confession to make. This is very true. I struggled when the children were young to let them win at Candyland. <laughs> to just let, to roll over and let someone win is not a part of how the Lord wired me. It's true. Denise would say, "Hun, you really should let them win once in a while. <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> I'm working on that, hon. Uh, 
Solomon, so, so this is speaking to me. Solomon tells us that people strive and compete, and this is hard for folks like, so they can be admi admired, so that we can be seen as a winner, okay? It, envy and strife, why? Because I got to win, and I don't care if you lose, I'm going to outdo you. I'm going to win, whether it be sports or on the job, or I've got bigger muscles, that never was something. Anyway, uh, whether I make more money, I got a nicer house, a nicer home, whatever the case, we're competing. And you know what? When you're competing, that produces envy. Look at it, verse 4, very clear. Solomon says, competing and envying one another is meaningless. See his conclusion, verse 4? It's just chasing after the wind. There's no lasting meaning or satisfaction in that. Ain't nobody got time for that. Knock it off. Other people, uh, weary of competition now, go to the other extreme, okay? So there's folks who are highly competitive. Now verse 5, he says, and there are some people, um, here's, here's where they go, fools, verse 5, fold their hands and ruin themselves. Folding your hands means you, you quit. <laughs> I, I fold my hand. I'm not even trying. I'm not even going to play the game. I'm not going to work. I'm not going to race. I'm not going to try to win. I'm going to fold my hands and rock myself into ruin. That's the other side of the coin. Got it? So some are all competitive and others go to the other extreme and say, I'm not even trying. I, I quit. I, I'm not even, even going to enter in. And now we get his advice, verse 6, on this whole work and try to win. He says, better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. The competitive person, verse 4 thinks that winning will bring them peace and satisfaction because I won. The lazy person thinks that doing nothing will bring them peace. Verse 6, look at it. Solomon says, no, the contented person is the one who with one hand works hard and with the other hand realizes it's okay to rest and enjoy life. Does that make sense? So the one who gets it right has learned to balance their life. Handful of quietness and tranquility, a handful of hard work and toil. Verse 6, that's his conclusion. That's where you need to aim for. Some of both. And then Solomon says, and then there's this other type of person. Let's call him the greedy man. Verse 7, here we go. Again, I, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless. A miserable person. A miserable business. Okay, this person is really into the game Monopoly. Are there Monopoly players here today? Monopoly? Anybody over here? 
used to play Monopoly a lot. What's the goal in Monopoly? I want to bankrupt you. <laughs> and I want all the houses, and I want all the hotels, and I want everyone else to be in ruins. Okay? Solomon says here, verses 7 and 8, if you're not careful, if you're playing Monopoly in real life, uh, you can win and you can have all the hotels, you can have all the properties, but in your relentless pursuit to gain everything, you actually wind up losing the things that matter. You see, I don't think he was saying that this wealthy man doesn't have family. I think what he's saying is this wealthy man has nobody close to him in his life. Yeah, he might have children, but he's so busy getting wealth and winning the Monopoly board, he doesn't know them. They don't know him. He, he likely already lost his marriage. Why? Because he wasn't paying any attention to the spouse. Why? Because I'm all in. I've got to attain. I, I, I've got to own the whole board. They don't have any close friends. Why? Because there's no time for friendship. It's all about gaining and accumulating wealth. If you're not careful, you can gain everything as far as the world is. You can have all the stuff and die all alone. Very sad. No close, nobody close to inherit all your stuff that you accumulated in life. So what's the solution to all this chaos and competitiveness? and unfairness. What's the solution to uh, not giving up and quitting and I'm not even going to try or relentless greed that leaves me all alone? You ready? He's going to give us his solution. Probably should take a note or two here, verses 9 and 12. This is good stuff. How to survive the unfairness, the sad, lonely, envious chaos of this greedy world. Verse 9, here we go. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. First point, two are better than one on the job. Two are better than one on the job. Meaning we accomplish much more when we're together, when we're working together. We don't do well alone. We, we don't do well when we don't have a team around us. We were created for relationship even on the job. Even on the job, we need a team. I would argue first you need Jesus Christ, center of your team, but then we need other people around us who we work together with. And some of you are really, really good at this, and others of us, we've got to work at Okay? We need a team. We need one another on the job. Second point he's going to make is we need one another when we're in trouble. Verse 10. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity the fool who falls and has no one to help them up. I just added that part. Did you see that? Okay. Yeah. The Mr. T but pity anyone who falls as no one to help them up. Um, 
no matter how experienced you are at walking, and some of us, we've walked for a long time, you and I are still prone to falling. Here's what I would need to know. Inquiring minds need to know this. How many of you have fallen in the past week or two? Can I see your hand? We see that hand over there. <laughs> okay. Um, the truth is, uh, we're talking about falling physically, but I believe Solomon is warning us about all types of falls. He's talking about falling and hurting yourself in finances. He's talking about falling and harming yourself morally. He's talking about falling in your marriage, falling in your blind spot, falling in your fatal flaw, which I believe your fatal flaw, and I believe we all have at least one, it's that area of your life that has the potential to destroy you and destroy those who are around you. We all have it. And it's falling in that area he's warning us about. You need other people. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, here's how Paul said it. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. All of us will fall and fail at times. Here's the question. Give me your eyes. Do you have anybody in your life that you've invited to help watch for a potential fall? Do you have anybody in your life who you have said, I, I give you permission. If you see I'm walking too close to the edge, would you warn me? I want you to warn me. I invite you. And then if you do fall, have you invited anybody to say, come and help me get back on my feet? Here's what Chuck Swindoll said. I, I like this. Friendships must be cultivated. They don't automatically occur when calamity strikes. And I've never heard of a rent-a-friend business either. Here's the truth. We think we can live isolated and alone, and then we assume it's okay. I don't, I don't cultivate friendships. I've never invited much anybody into my life. But then when I fall, I expect that everyone will come running to help me. And that's just foolish thinking. Because you didn't take the time to cultivate those friendships. You didn't take the time to invite people into your life. I can't even count how many times that Denise and Pastor Ward and Pastor Bob and Kevin and now Pastor Chad and the board have caught me and counseled me and said, you know what, I see where you're going with that, but I think you better stop. I think you're, you're, you're near the edge, you're going to fall. That's, that's not good thinking. <laughs> Would have crashed and burned many times years ago. Here's his point. We need a team on the job. We need one another when we're in trouble. Verse 11, we need one another in the cold. Can I get an amen? I mean, like never before. Verse 11. I'll give you another run at that, because this, this is like set up for us today. Uh, we need one another. We're in, we're in the cold. Amen. amen. Verse 11. Here we go. Uh, also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? 
Now, Solomon's talking ancient, biblical, Old Testament times. No heated cars, no heated donkeys or camels. Um, and if you are traveling and you don't get to the nearest inn by dark, if you can't find a house where friendly strangers will welcome you in, you're going to be forced to sleep outside, in the dark, in the cold, just you and your cloak and your tunic. And even today, there are people we read about every year who freeze to death, even in 2019. You've been warned you should have the gear, but even today, people freeze to death. Here's the point. Cultivate friendships when the sun is still shining. Make friends, make the effort to get friends around you when the sun is, before it gets really cold and dark. Make sense? When, when the sun is shining and when you're doing well before winter sets in on your life, make sure you've done the hard work to cultivate people in your life. Which brings us to the fourth and final solution of unfairness and wild chaos in this world. Verse 12. Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Here's the fourth and final solution. Two people are better than one when you're in a fight. When, when, when you got to go to battle with people, two people are way better than one when you're in a fight. Now, I know this is going to shock you, but in the last 28 years, there have been uh, lots of folks who aren't necessarily pleased and happy with this preacher. Does that surprise you? You say, <laughs> not really. <laughs> uh, some of the attacks and criticism were deserved. I was foolish. I was a jerk. Uh, some of the personal attacks were uh, from people I didn't even know. They, or I just barely knew them. But the ones that were the hardest were those who once were close to me. Which is the key advantage to a local church body. Give me your eyes. That's why we, we get plugged into community. That's why we serve together. Cal, that's why we join a community small group so we can live life together over time so that when the attacks and the fiery darts come, and they will, they will at times, people won't be happy with you, and the enemy will make sure you get some extra fiery darts. You have people around you who know you, who love you, who care for you. They've got your back and you've got theirs. That's what church family is all about. It takes an investment of time and energy and effort. Otherwise, you're going to be all alone. And it's very sad when I get the phone call with someone who didn't take the time to make the investment to make friends and connections and now they're all alone and bad stuff's going on. 
and you know, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm not going to tell them it's too late, but that's what I'm thinking. You should have done that five, ten years ago, and now you're looking for that now. It's really too late. Four questions to ponder as we close. Ready? Here's uh, four uh, things to uh, chew on. Number one, are you regular here on Sundays? Are you regular here on Sundays? Meaning, um, well, of course, going to get up and, you know, do, do I get up and go to work? Do, 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 I, do I make it a priority to go do my fun things? Well, then why on earth would I not be here to gather together with the family? Why do we do that? Give me your eyes. We gather so that we can worship and encourage one another weekly. That's what they did in the New Testament. I would encourage you to say that's what it's supposed to be today. We gather weekly because we need that, that encouragement, that support, that connecting with each other. Facebook Live is great. Thank you, Kyle, for being back there. Well done. It's wonderful. It's a great tool when you need it. But can I just say, and I'll look straight at you, Facebook folk, and I know some of you, you're, you're home because of the weather, but if this is becoming your church, you don't make connections in front of the computer. You just don't. It's a great tool. I, I'm, I'm glad it's there. And when, when we're away, guess what? I feel like I'm here with you. I love it. I do. But you don't build friends in front of a computer. You, you don't connect with the family when you're home and alone. Second question. Have you risked joining a community small group? I say risk because some of you probably have tried it and you said, you know, that didn't go so well. It just didn't fit well. Cal, I think we can say that happens. And if you try it and it's not a good fit, we won't go tell everybody, but we'll just quietly slip you into another group and see if that's a good fit. Right? Right? Here's the truth. The reward far outweighs the risk. The reward far outweighs the, the risk and the effort and the time. Third question as we close. Are, are you serving somewhere in the church family? Because... It's amazing how when you step up and you start using the gift that Jesus gave you and you get plugged into the church, it's amazing how you feel so connected to the rest of the body because you're using your gift and you're being the part of the body Jesus created you and you're, you're doing it in conjunction with other members of the church family and, and they're using their gift in the body and when you do that, suddenly now, the connections grow and get stronger and closer. Fourth question, and we're done. Do you know Jesus personally? And I know uh, Sunday morning you weathered the storm. I, I suspect that most of you know Jesus, but it's critical. Is there clear evidence that Jesus is alive in you? Because if you don't have that part, then all the other things are just kind of wasted time because it all starts with Jesus. 
Is, is he clearly daily a part of your life? There's this old hymn that says it this way. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. You know that song? No, not one. No, not one. Then it says, Jesus knows all about our struggles. He will guide till the day is done. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. You know, friends are great. <laughs> they're needed, they're necessary. But knowing Jesus is vital. <laughs> it's essential. So I say one time as we close, have you said yes to Jesus? Jesus, I need you in my life. I need your forgiveness. I need your healing. I need your love, your spirit, your hope in me. Have you, have you said yes to Jesus? Let's pray as we close. Most important question in life. Most important question that will be ringing in our ears for all of eternity. Did you say yes to Jesus? Do you know him as Savior and Lord and King? Are you walking with him today and allowing his fruit to be alive and working through you? You have to do that for the first time. That's where you cross the bridge into eternal life. And then you got to do that daily as we connect and abide and have Jesus front and center in our lives. His fruit coming out of our mouths, living out in our actions. If you'd say right now, you know what, Pastor Jeff, I'm really not sure. You know, I did some religious stuff. I raised my hand. I prayed a prayer. I walked an aisle, but really nothing changed. I'd say, why don't you cement that issue even right now? Jesus, I want to know you. I need to have you front and center in my life. I need your forgiveness. I need the hope that you bring. And I need that daily. Jesus, I believe you are the sinless Lamb of God. Jesus, I believe you took my place on that cross. Jesus, I believe you shed your blood for my greatest problem in life. I'm a sinner. Jesus, I believe you took my place in the grave. Jesus, I believe that early Sunday morning you arose from the dead. You defeated sin and Satan and death for me. I believe that by faith. Those are the facts. I believe them. And right now, I choose to receive you I open the door of my life to you, Jesus. Take charge. Rule and reign. Be my king, my lord, my savior, my master. The hope of the world, Jesus Christ. Maybe for you today, you need to say, you know what, I'm going to commit. I need to be regular. Not give up the habit of meeting as some are in the habit of doing. I need to be regular. I need the church family 
Because, Lord, that's how you've designed me. I need to risk joining a community small group. I need to step up and start using the gift that Jesus has given me. Lord, we love you. We're grateful for your book. We're grateful for what we learn from Solomon's uh, venture into life apart from you. Help us to learn those lessons. We ask this all in Jesus' amazing name.